I'm Evan Smith. I'm the editor-in-chief and CEO of the Texas Tribune. I've come over today, although I'm not moderating this panel. I wish I were. I moderated what I now refer to as the K-plus panel last year. I've told Senator Hutchinson I'm going to ask her every single year until she starts saying no, and we're going to add different people every time with her. For, uh, it was a conversation called, Can the Center Hold? Well, that's the same conversation we're having again this year, and it's the, you'll hear uh, about this great topic momentarily. Um, I'm here just to welcome you and then to hand off the baton to my friend Julie Mason in a second. Uh, this is the biggest Texas Tribune Festival ever. If you had been here last night, you would have heard me say uh, the most tracks, 11, the widest range of subjects, the most speakers, more than 250, I think it may be 260, in fact, speakers. I mean, really the most. Um, and confirmation this morning, the most people who have ever attended one of our festivals. Uh, that is a great thing. If, yes, applaud. I'll applaud too. The thing about this festival, it is the very best, I will assert this, this is the very best realization of our mission. The Tribune is a nonprofit public media organization, and what we want to do is educate the people of the state, 27 million people who need to be thinking and talking more about public education and health care and immigration and all the big issues that matter. I do not care what choices people make. I do care that people make choices. We do not care what people think. We do care that they think. And in this state, which has the worst voter turnout in the whole country over the last three election cycles, boy, do we need more people to think. And we need more people to participate. And whatever the outcome is, peace. But the Tribune as a media organization has taken as its mission educating as many people in the state in a nonpartisan way about the things that matter and then hopefully the state is better for that. So we are thrilled to have you here. Uh, I want to acknowledge the University of Texas at Austin. I want to acknowledge South by Southwest, and I want to acknowledge our presenting sponsor, Walmart, for their generous support of this event. Uh, we have a great day. If you've not already been to any of our programs, we hope that you will sample different tracks and, and different uh, uh, speakers because it really is a very rich feast. Uh, Julie Mason of SiriusXM's POTUS channel, a veteran of the Texas Press Corps, has come in at my invitation again from Washington to moderate this panel. She will introduce our extraordinary panelists. Please enjoy yourselves. Thank you so much for being here. And Julie, it's over to you. Yes, be seated. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. I am Julie Mason from Sirius XM Radio. I know we have some listeners here. I really appreciate everyone coming out and to see this terrific panel, especially on behalf of the excellent journalists at the Texas Tribune. I'm so happy to welcome you to the fifth annual Texas Tribune Festival. Uh, please turn your cell phones on silent. You are welcome to tweet out this event. The hashtag, as you may know, is hashtag uh, TTF. And um, I want to introduce the panel, and we're and I'm going to leave plenty of time for Q and A at the end. So have some have some great questions. I mean, you don't often get a chance to ask questions of of, of a panel this distinguished. So it's it's a real privilege, I think, for all of us. Henry Cisneros is the former mayor of San Antonio. He served as HUD secretary for President Bill Clinton. He currently serves at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, D.C. Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison is a Texas Republican. She was the fourth-ranking U.S. Senator during her term. She is currently senior counsel at Bracewell and Giuliani. John Sununu was governor of New Hampshire from 1983 to 1989. He later served as White House counsel for President George H.W. Bush. <clears throat> He's a Republican commentator. He recently wrote a book, The Quiet Man, which uh, he's also putting in an appearance down at the Texas Book Festival this afternoon. So two chances to hear from the governor. 
Um, this event is going to be about 60 minutes, so settle in. And as I said, get those questions ready. But let's get to you. That's okay. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I'm so, John, John's the quiet man. I'm the, John's the quiet man. I'm the invisible one. You know, uh, there, was, there was going to be a faux pas. I'm glad we got it out of the way early, That's of course. Right. Senator Evan Bayh, uh, Indiana Democrat, the senator these days, is a partner at the McGuire Woods Law Firm. He serves on an advisory board for the CIA, splits his time between Washington, D.C. and Indiana. <laughs> All right. Um, to the panel, I want to get started. We have a crisis in Washington, D.C. The House of Representatives has apparently no leadership. We have a, a, a budget that is about to go adrift and a debt ceiling that could spin this country into crisis. Uh, you all have extensive Washington experience. What, Senator, what's the situation? Give us your take. Well, unfortunately, uh, Julie, there, there are many causes for the dysfunction in the gridlock. You can talk about the gerrymandering of the House of Representatives. Uh, in the Senate, it's the role of big money driven by ideological interests on either side. Uh, you've also got the fact that very few people vote in primaries. So, for example, Dick Lugar was a six-term United States Senator from my state, a Republican. Uh, he didn't vote for Obamacare. He didn't vote for Dodd-Frank. He didn't vote for the stimulus bill. I mean, he's a card-carrying conservative Republican. He lost the Republican primary when he ran for re-election in my state by 20%, and that was in part because only 16% of eligible Republicans voted. So when you have very low voter turnout in primaries, who comes out? It's the most passionate, the most ideological, and so the members kind of get scared of all that, and they know if I compromise on anything, I'm going to get a primary opponent and conceivably lose my job, so they're very reluctant to, to compromise. So uh, the final thing I'd say is um, there's a big pew uh, poll done last year, and in some ways this does reflect changes in all of us. Um, if you look at people who are active politically on the Democratic and Republican side, uh, they don't live in the same neighborhoods, they don't go to the same churches, they don't uh, attend the same social clubs, and increasingly they view each other as almost not citizens of the same country. So my take on it, you ask what's going on, that's my take what's going on. I think what we need to do about it, just 30 seconds, uh, it used to be that the notion of compromise in this country was considered to be an act of statesmanship. The Constitution was one big compromise. Now it's become uh, considered an act of betrayal or, or selling out. And so we've got to get organizations like one that had a big uh, gathering up in John's home state of New Hampshire. We had 2,000 people on Monday uh, called No Labels. And these are Democrats, Republicans dedicated to trying to reconcile our differences rather than to exacerbating them. I think ultimately that's what we're going to need if we're going to make the, the government work again. Senator Hutchison, when you served, there wasn't this sense of intense partisanship. It's true, and I agree with much of what Evan has said, and I'm glad that um, since you ignored him, you made him take the first step at it. Uh, welcome to Texas. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> seriously, I want to welcome all of our uh, visitors uh, to Texas because um, this is a wonderful opportunity for us to talk about these issues and having uh, Governor Sununu and uh, Governor Senator Bai, uh, as well as Henry and myself, who are Texans, um, uh, is it's really uh, helpful because I think, I mean, I hope all of us would say that we are principled in our views. We differ on those, but anyone who believes that you can go into 
the United States Senate or House of Representatives with such diverse states and constituencies as we have in America um, and expect to get everything you want to the letter is not really running for an office to represent people to govern. And I think it's time that we differentiate not uh, on a partisan basis, but will you stand up for our principles and make it work in government? Because a government shutdown or this runaway debt um, cannot be handled if we talk across each other. Uh, I was reading a little uh, uh, vignette uh, recently, and it said, um, a dialogue is not two monologues. And I thought, there are a lot of people I would like to send that to. <laughs> so it is time that we understand the Reagan rule, and that is if I can move the ball 60% of where I want to go, then I'll work for that other 40% the next time. And I think we've got to adopt some kind of standard that we can ask every candidate, will you represent those of us who are going to vote for you or not um, by committing to govern? And that would be my, my focal question because we can do a lot that's positive for our country if we hear what people are saying and then try to forge that, that core that is the right core for progress. Secretary Cisneros. Julie, uh, I think the things that the senators have said about gerrymandering, money in politics, the breakdown of, of, of some dialogue, um, is all correct. But I think we also have to look at why people are angry out in the country. And a psychologist once told me that when you find anger, you usually find fear. And I think there's a lot of fear out in the country about things that are spinning out of control, or at least that's the sense that people have. They're fearful about sort of the new economy and what it means for them and lower wages. They're fearful about the international environment, very dangerous, terrorism of a kind we've not seen before. They're fearful of demographic change and aging of the population juxtaposed against new faces and new accents in, in the country. Um, there's just a lot of things that people are fearful about and we, we haven't found a way to communicate with people about how we're gonna address these things. A, a broader discussion in the country at large that, 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 that makes it clear to people we can't solve these things unless we work together is important. We're not going to solve it with structural things or political things because the, the, the fear is legitimate. I mean, it's embedded in real, what economists would call secular trends, big picture trends that uh, are, 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 are frightening people. Uh, so that's a, a bit of a maybe kinder assessment of, of how the pub, why the public is in the mood that it is today, my sense. Governor Sununu, when you served in the White House, uh, it was quite a different time politically in Washington, D.C. Well, it was, but I really don't think it's that different than today, and I'll, I'll explain that. I really think the biggest problem in Washington is that people don't realize things only get done 
when a president leads. Bill Clinton wanted welfare reform, and he had a Republican-controlled Congress. And he went down there and brought them in and negotiated personally, investing personal capital, in some cases making angry some of the members of his own party. But he had been a governor. He understood how to deal with legislatures. And he personally worked it until he got what he wanted. In the White House I was in, George Herbert Walker Bush understood that he needed a multi-year budget. The country needed a multi-year budget. He had a Congress in the House 260 to 175, controlled by the Democrats. In the Senate, 55-45, controlled by the Democrats. But he spent and burnt his political capital in order to get that done. And, and of course, no good deed goes unpunished. He did not get reelected. But the point I'm making is that presidents who invest their personal capital and in some cases go against the grain of their own party on part of the issues, get a greater hold consistent with their own philosophy, and get something that's worthwhile for the country. I really believe that the anger in this country is because we have failed to get results in Washington. And I really believe that, that this idea that somehow Congress can negotiate with itself to create success is not true. I have never seen a Congress that can lead itself. It really needs a focal point, both sides, the side that's in the White House and the side that's not, actually benefit when there's leadership from the top. And I really think a lot of the reason that, that we have lost comedy, C-O-M-I-T-Y, in the process is because there's not someone in the last and I won't limit it just to one, one current administration. We have had administrations that have not dealt constructively in, in spending political capital to bring the two sides together in Congress. It has to be done from the top. So you, you would include President Obama and President Bush in that assessment? I, I actually think that, that um, sometimes, some, whether it was because of personal failings or circumstances, I think we have had a long period of time in which the, the occupant in the White House didn't do what I think needs to be done to bring both sides of Congress together. What about the responsibility of voters as well? We have very low voter turnout in this country. And going back to what Secretary Cisneros said, people feel quite fearful. They, they feel a certain futility about the political process. Senator By, how to get more people to vote? And do you think that would improve government? Uh, it would improve government, uh, in my opinion, Julie, because as long as you have just the most ideological and the most partisan people driving the debate, it's going to be very difficult. And I agree with John when, you know, we were both governors, uh, you had to demonstrate uh, leadership with the state legislature to try and bring them together. Uh, but uh, I think times are more polarized now than they were, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Certainly more polarized than my father's. My father was in the United States Senate, and in 1968, when he was running for his first reelection, the Republican leader in the United States Senate, a man named Everett Dirksen, came up to him on the floor of the Senate, Kay, can you imagine this, and said, I want to help with your reelection? The Republican leader saying that to a Democratic member? I mean, you'd, uh, this would be a science fiction movie if you had uh, saw, saw this today. So it, it is more polarized times. So the question is, how do we get out of those polarized times? It's by having more citizens take part in the debate, 
uh, and as Kay mentioned, hold candidates accountable. And if they're not getting the job done, if you're just going to Washington or Austin or wherever, and it's just you're saying, my way or the highway, it's all or nothing. Well, all or nothing usually ends up with nothing. So we gather here today, we have no budget as a country. We're within a few weeks of defaulting on the national debt. Uh, with all that might mean, I don't think we will, but what that would mean to the financial markets globally. We don't have a high, we don't have an infrastructure transportation bill. All the highway construction in the country will come to a stop in the next month or so if nothing is done. Uh, on December 31st, there are about 30 provisions of the tax code that are going to expire, go away, uh, that businesses have to plan around and know about. How, how do you plan to invest or hire next year if you just don't even know what the tax code is going to be? So even the basic blocking and tackling isn't going to get done. And it's because of this intransigence. And that's why groups like you know, No Labels are trying to, there's this last thing I'll say, there's, they formed a, a problem sol solvers caucus in the House. Uh, 60 to 70 Democrats and Republicans who've said, look, we don't agree on everything, but we're going to agree on four broad principles. We're going to reverse engineer this. We're not going to start off with the disagreements. We're going to start off with just in general, where do we want to go? We want to grow the economy. We want to create energy independence. We want to balance the budget in 15 years. And uh, we want to uh, make Social Security and Medicare solvent for 75. Let's start off with those as goals. And then let's see if we can work back and not agree on all the solutions, maybe not most of the solutions, but at least some of the solutions. And so I think by getting more people involved, by encouraging our representatives and senators and governors to be practical problem solvers, that's eventually how you break through this. Senator Hutchison, I, I want to talk about voters, but since Senator Bai has mentioned the debt limit, I wonder when you served, how was that handled when, when the president came through and wanted to raise the debt limit in Congress? Well, usually there was a negotiation and the uh, sequestration was one of the negotiations that occurred in order to raise the debt limit. Um, and I think it is wise uh, to uh, use that debt limit as a way to put caps on spending. Now, sequestration, I happen to think we should raise the defense side, but not the discretionary um, uh, other non-defense uh, appropriations, because where we need it right now is in defense. We know that uh, we are in a troubled world. We need to make sure that our troops have what they need to do the job we're asking them to do. Um, I certainly think that this is a time when you need to make sure the equipment is there, et cetera. But that's a negotiation, and I think we are not going to default on debt, but we need to have a standard. Our debt is out of control. Uh, $16, 17000000000000 trillion. Uh, it is way beyond. We used to have 40% of gross domestic product in debt. That was the norm. Today it's in the 70s. 70s. And it's not, that's not responsible. And you wonder why there is a sluggish economy and the stock market's up and down. Um, jobs are not uh, being created and they're not being, uh, they're not uh, being raised uh, to a higher level. That's because, in my opinion, we have over-regulation, we have too much debt, and uh, over-taxing uh, of the people who are the job creators, which are small business people. And I, I think there should be a negotiation. Uh, I think the president should be willing to negotiate, and certainly Congress, uh, because no one wants to shut down government. It's more costly. It ends up costing you more. but. That should be when the President and Congress come together. And I want to say that um, what Governor Sununu said uh, is quite um, 
right, and that is the president needs to engage with Congress. I hear Democrats complaining, um, as well as Republicans, of course, uh, but that they don't they don't have a sense of where the president wants to go. They there's not a lot of activity between the president and his emissaries to Congress um, and the leaders of Congress. And then you would also ask the question, where are the leaders of the House? Uh, and that has been a problem as well, a uh, valid question. Um, the, house, but, the House is still looking for them. <laughs> yes, uh, but let me just make one point on what can we do about it. Uh, I start a lot of speeches by saying, how many of you have been to a precinct convention? I'm not going to ask this group because I bet you all have, but <laughs> mostly two people out of a hundred might raise their hand. And that is the genesis of a problem. Because if the people who go to precinct conventions, which eventually write the party platform, that then the candidates have to answer for, uh, if they're not the people who are out there working and trying to create jobs and trying to do a good job, then you are going to have fringe people who are not in mainstream um, work-a-day world that know what the problems of our country really are that need to be solved. So having that activity is good. I'm going to put out one more thing. I put think out a different things. type of primary system could also engage more of the electorate, and that would be the Louisiana-type primary, where it's open and you can vote for a Democrat for governor, a Republican for the Senate, a Democrat for lieutenant governor, a Republican for attorney general, and then if one gets more than 50%, that person's elected, but if they don't, there's a runoff between the top two, regardless of party. That would make our candidates have to appeal to a broader spectrum, and I think it might encourage more people to participate um, if they see that they can have those choices. Jungle primary. Julie, mm -hmm. um, back to your question about mm -hmm. what would engage the voters. Um, it strikes me that a lot of politics these days, from the voters' perspective, is about an insider game. Uh, the stories are about the horse race. The stories are about uh, the fundraising. This morning's uh, front page of the New York Times is about the tallying up of who's raising the most money. Uh, I think that offends the voters, uh, that, that so much of it is about the fundraising, the, the time spent on it, uh, all of the inside game of politics, from the redistricting problems and, and, and abuses to all of the all of the structural things, and people don't hear enough discussion about their problems. It's interesting the people who've broken through in this presidential campaign, whether you like them or not, are the people who have a very clear message about what people are really feeling. Sanders, I'm not a Sanders fan, but he's talking in clear language about some of the problems people feel about Wall Street abuses and the banks. And, 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 and he's getting the, the turnouts at, of people of all ages who feel aggrieved by, by the situation. Trump, again, not a Trump fan, but he's, he's talking about, uh, you know, speaking to, to, to people's concerns. You can agree or disagree with his solutions or whether he has any, but he's, 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 he's trying to penetrate and, and, and get past the layers of the onion, you know, and, 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 and talk about some core 
truths. He says, for example, he dismisses the question of money by saying, I don't have to raise money. I have money, right? And dismisses other people who are out there groveling for money. So um, my, my point is, I think voters are really interested in, in hearing, well, what is the solution to the wage problem I confront? Or what's the solution to the, the, the fact that I can't afford housing? Or what's the solution to um, the healthcare issues in concrete ways that touch their lives? And we really have to find a language that speaks to people at the point of their family, their household, their concerns. That I think will draw voters out. And when it's, when it's combined with a, you know, a, a charismatic leadership, as we saw with President Kennedy in, in his time or, um, or, or Obama in 08, you, you can get a turnout. You can get involvement from voters. I, I think I hear you making an argument for uh, better leadership, better campaigns, but also better news media, better coverage by news organizations. Well, you know, the, the news media has a bad habit of covering the horse race. I was in a discussion a couple of days ago. I was in New Hampshire yesterday because we did a housing summit, and seven of the presidential candidates came to the, to the summit at St. Anselm's College in, in, in New Hampshire. But talking before, the day before, with people from the union leader, they were dismissing polls on substantive questions where people were being asked, what subject is most important to you, or what do you think about the disparity on housing prices? Dismissing those because the only thing they said that they would write would be the horse race, who's in front at the moment. So it was all about the mechanics and not about people and their needs. Governor Sununu, you represent the first primary state in the presidential race. You must have some thoughts about how to get people engaged in the process if they don't yeah. live in New Hampshire. Well, let me make one point and then I'll get to that. Sure. I, I mentioned earlier that quite often no good deed goes unpunished. And that's our fault. And I really do think a lot of the problems in, in Washington is because we as voters do not reward people who do the right thing. And let me go back to the example I gave of George Herbert Walker Bush. It is not easy to negotiate with Congress. And when a president goes through that and comes out with a package which at that time was huge, $500 billion worth of reduction uh, in, in, the, uh, in the deficit, three and a half times as much reduction coming from spending cuts as from the taxes. And the tax that was in there was virtually all an increase in the gasoline tax that had not been adjusted for inflation for nearly a decade. It basically was a readjustment of the gasoline tax for inflation. And George Bush paid for getting the country what it needed at a very difficult time, when deficits were a problem, when the world was beginning to lose confidence in the dollar, when he needed the money to take care of the men and women that he had sent into harm's way to deal with Saddam Hussein in Kuwait, he gets punished for doing the right thing. So what's the message to other political, pe political leaders? It's not worth it. It's our fault if we don't reward good results. The second point I want to make is, is how hard that process is. And, and when, when people take on the responsibility, they're talking about leadership in the House, 
It, you have, in the House, the problem that with the House Republicans have now is 245 members of Congress on the Republican side. Every one of them thinks they should be Speaker, uh, except Paul Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, they all think they know how it ought to be done, and they want all the rules of operation changed to the way they want it. It is not an easy job, and we have to somehow give a positive feedback to those that do a good job. One more point before I get to the question I was asked. <laughs> Nowadays, if you succeed in getting elected and doing anything, you automatically become the establishment. And now you're the target for having even succeeded in being elected. We, as an electorate, have to get our heads straight on what this process is all about. You do not change policy without winning elections. And you do not change policy by having people win elections, get rewarded for changing policy the way we want it. And that, to me, is a responsibility that we carry into the system. Now, the question was about New Hampshire and how you get voters out. Uh, you get voters out by dealing with the issues I just touched on. Voters have to be educated, if you will, into how important their role is in the whole process. People turn out, the reason the New Hampshire primary is first is that the New Hampshire electorate works hard in this season. They don't just go to the, the, the rallies of the person they like. They try to go to all of them. They take it on as a responsibility. It is a very funny state. We have no sales tax and no income tax. And the reason that is, is that the primary responsibility for policy is still at the town and city level. And people go to town meetings and vote their town budget. They participate. In New Hampshire, we have a million and a quarter people. We have 400 in the legislature. Every town has at least 15 or 20 positions that affect your pocketbook which means that, and, and most of our terms of office are two years, which means that every two years, there's about 10,000, 12,000 people running for office that can affect the pocketbook of the citizens around the state, which means over your lifetime, statistically speaking, either you, your spouse, or one of your neighbors have run for office. <laughs> it is self-governance. All I'm arguing for is that we as an electorate have to be smarter. We have to understand what we do when we impose requirements on people that are counterproductive. We have to know what we do when we fail to reward success. And we have to know what we do when we say that if you get elected, you're automatically a loser in the process, because that is a recipe for destruction. We have got to be a more active part of the process as, as voters, or else it is going to fall apart. Secretary Cisneros, a lot of voters are very worried about money in politics. We see exorbitant sums being raised to fuel the presidential campaign. Super PACs uh, came about as a result of Citizens United. What can politicians do to fix it? Do they have any incentive to fix it? Well, personal judgment, I think Citizens United is a major, major, major problem. 
in terms of the amount of money that's going into politics unidentified uh, and I, you know, perhaps down the road there will be revisions to in other cases that come forward that allow some kind of recalibration of how money is being put into politics. But money is a huge problem. Um, you know, I've seen the, the numbers that say uh, Congress people have to spend some part of every single day on the phone raising money from the day you arrive. And if you're from a big state, Senator Hutchinson can speak to this from Texas, but the senators from places like California and New York, I mean, they literally have a quota of about 10000 a day that has to be raised every day you're there in order to have enough in the kitty to fend off opponents uh, and or survive a tough a challenge, a primary challenge or, or general election challenge. So money is a huge problem and, and a big part of why people are so cynical about the system today. They feel unempowered, they feel locked out, they feel voiceless because the money plays such a big role. Henry's uh, uh, being too modest. He's right, but he's too modest. Uh, in the United States Senate today, it is not uncommon for a senator who's in cycle, that means your election's coming up within the next two years, to spend the majority of their time raising money. Uh, you have fundraisers for breakfast, you have fundraisers for lunch, you have fundraisers for dinner. When there's a break in the action, you have a separate uh, uh, cell phone where you, you go outside of government property because you're not allowed to do that, uh, and you go sit in a car someplace or you got a little office and you, what do they call, dial for dollars, you call up people asking them for money. And when the weekend rolls around, you get on an airplane and you fly to California or Florida or some other place to have more fundraiser. It's just all the time, and it takes away from focus on the issues. And now the, the, the rise under Citizens United to be super PACs, where you get super empowered individuals who can contribute 10 million, 20 million, 80 million, 100 million dollars, uh, that has an impact too. Uh, I, in my time there, I never saw anybody bought and paid for. Never, never saw that. But I think we're being a little naive when, you know, uh, people given that amount of money do get an extra hearing, and there's no doubt about that. And I'm not sure that's how the democracy was intended to, to operate. The only way you're going to change it, the law will never be changed. Uh, the presidential candidates do have different opinions about who they would appoint to the Supreme Court. And so if you had a majority of the justices who had a different opinion about uh, the First Amendment and the role of money in politics and all that, you could see the system change. But that's the only way that's going to happen. Two just other quick points. I do think we need to take a look at our system as a whole. You know, there are a lot of candidates wandering the landscape today, and they'll say, it's all about the Constitution. We need to remember the Constitution, and that's great. Uh, but the Constitution, we rebelled against the king. And so we were very skeptical as a country about the concentration of power in anybody's hands because we cared about individual freedom. So we dispersed power. We've got separation of powers at the federal level, the executive, legislative, judicial. We've got federalism, so it's broken up between the federal, state, and local levels because we didn't want one group being too powerful. They might run amok. You know, and things have changed over the last couple hundred years, but my, my point is this, because power is diffuse, and in the Senate, you've got a filibuster uh, requirement for most things. You've got to get 60 votes. The only way you can make a system like our Constitution work is if people are willing to sit down and reconcile their differences and occasionally try and hammer out principled compromises. If you just take an all-or-nothing approach, it's just our constitutional structure will not work. Uh, Lyndon Johnson from, from your state once said, and I, he grew up poor, didn't he, Kay, in East Texas, he grew up poor. 
Uh, LBJ once said that a man who's not willing to settle for half a loaf, well, that man never went to bed hungry. You know, and uh, that's pretty much the way the system's operating now. Uh, the American people are hungry for action, but it's just stuck. And the final thing I'd say, and Henry um, talked about the importance we, of leadership attributes, and John did too, either charismatic leaders, as Henry is referring to, or leaders who are willing to take strong executive you know, role, as John was mentioning. Uh, President Kennedy once, here's an irony, President Kennedy uh, authored a book with Ted Sorensen's help. It was called Profiles in Courage. And if you go, you know, look at that book, every single chapter, every one of them was about a United States senator who cast a vote that that senator thought would probably cost them their political career. Including Sam Houston of Texas. And, and, and many of them did. Many, one of the chapters, I think it was, I don't think it was Houston, I think it was Thomas Hart Benton, he was cast in a hard vote, and he, the, the, every chapter begins with a quote. And this quote was, as I cast my vote, I looked down into my open grave. <laughs> well, you know, not quite that dramatic these days, but my point is right, and John was making a good point. You know, we want strong leaders, and then we punish them for you know, doing what needs to be. It had to be difficult for President Bush to strike that deal, even though he got most of what his side wanted. It was politically very painful for him. It had to be difficult for Ronald Reagan to agree to raise taxes on Social Security. Tip O'Neill, it had to be hard for him to agree to raise the retirement age. But they knew it had to be done for the sake of the nation. And so we exalt that kind of leadership in books like Kennedy's. Maybe we got to start voting that way, too. Kevin, you made a very important point, not surprisingly, <laughs> first, first about time the fact everybody. of what the Constitution is. The Constitution is designed to make government inefficient in the short run and effective in the long run. And the point Evan made about the Constitution is structured so that it forces people to come together and accept a fraction of a loaf at a time to move the process forward. And people that are touting the Constitution as somehow demanding absolute purity don't understand the system. The system is designed... I went from the private sector to being governor. The hardest lesson I had to learn is to tolerate the short-term inefficiency of the system in order to get some decent results long-term for the state. It is unbelievable how people who are in the private sector think they're going to make the system so efficient that they're going to get everything they want in 24 hours. I think that might be Ted Cruz calling you. I'm not yeah. sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be happy to explain to him. <laughs> when, I, when new governors come to me and they say, what, what piece of advice can you give me? I tell them, find $5,000 of slush money. And they, they look at me and I say, you need some, some money like that to have coffee outside the governor's chambers every Thursday and invite every legislature who wants to come down and have coffee and donuts with you to come down and talk to them so you're talking to both sides and finding out what they really want 
and what they really need. It is the most effective time that you can possibly spend as a chief executive or sitting down informally with the legislature to get things done. That's what the Constitution was designed for. It wanted people to talk and argue and fight and settle for what is good for the country. So, Senator Hutchison, the Tea Party, that seems to be what we're talking about. But on the other side, there's a new, a new Pew survey out just last week that showed that for the first time, uh, more Democrats self-identify as liberal than moderate. So are we perhaps getting the government that we deserve? Well, by people not participating, the answer would be yes. Um, and the, I think our responsibility is to make sure that people understand that, that if more people participate and make their views known, you know, I hear so many people complaining about what's going on in Washington. And um, yet, those are not the people who are active in the party, probably don't vote in a primary. And um, I, I, can't, I can't emphasize enough the importance of the primary in this uh, dilemma, because the people who are casting these votes fear a primary opponent more than the general election. That's the case for congressmen in districts and the case in states. And so if they are always going to that base, um, then we're not going to get what mainstream America really wants, which is action, dealing with the problems. Uh, the no labels that Evan mentioned, um, I am one of the people that is also involved with that. If you look at the, they have four principles, it's very simple, very clear. I think everyone in this room would agree with those principles. And what uh, No Labels is trying to do is get people just to do that, don't go beyond those four basic, uh, really fiscal responsibility uh, principles. And if we could get people to adopt those and then work on them, uh, I thought the, uh, contract with America that Newt Gingrich uh, put forward. Not whether you agree with the whole thing, but it was 10 things we'll do if we're elected. And then when the House was taken over by Republicans for the first time in over 50 years, based on that contract with America, which people understood, it was clear and simple, um, they did deliver on those uh, promises. And I know I was trying to get the spousal IRA because one of the things I ran on was that women especially, but men as well now, who work inside the home are discriminated against in um, their retirement security because they couldn't contribute equally to an IRA. And I wanted to change that. When I went to the Republicans in the House and said, Please, everybody is for this. Make the stay-at-home spouse able to have the same tax advantages for an IRA as those who work outside the home. They agreed with me, but they said, we have to fulfill the Contract with America requirements first, and then the next thing that we will fund is that. And they did. They fulfilled their promise 
and then they funded the spousal IRA, um, which was the right thing to do. And I think if we had those simple, clear goals, like no labels, and everybody agreed, then the problem solvers who want to go forward would do it with, they made that promise in the campaign, they keep the promise, and they move forward. All right, I gotta get your quick takes on the presidential campaign, and then we're gonna go to Q&A. So, Governor Sununu. I absolutely do not understand it. <laughs> That's the first time in my life you've ever heard me admit something like that. Okay. Senator Hutchison? It is, uh, let me say that when I was in the arena, um, we didn't have ever that I remember 12 or 15 candidates in a primary. So I will say it is very big. Maybe it's the New Hampshire grassroots uh, uh, that is coming forward, but now people can just run for president. Uh, and now they are doing it. And we're gonna see how this experiment in uh, the grassroots politics of Maybe they've taken the page out of New Hampshire, Governor, um, because everybody thinks they can be president. It's not now just the 100 United no. States senators who think so. Secretary Cisneros. If you're asking for the result, um, just a, a guess, a projection, I think Hillary Clinton wins the Democratic nomination, whether or not Biden is in, that's what I think. Uh, and hard to call on the Republican side, but I think people are beginning to think that it might actually be possible that Donald Trump accepts the nomination. You know, I mean, I think people are saying, you know, this was unthinkable some time ago. It's still unthinkable. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I think the Republicans would be best served by having Jeb Bush as a nominee and then teamed up with someone like John Kasich and, and then they've got Florida and Ohio and that makes all the sense in the world. But uh, these are not, this is not a normal year and the normal rules are not, uh, we're not playing by the normal rules. And Jeb Bush has fallen to like fifth place or something. So um, who knows how that side is gonna end up, but it's hard, it's hard to, to, to sit here and say, I can envision that person standing up and, and making the, the nomination speech. I, I, I gotta believe the smartest choice would be Jeb Bush, but it could be Rubio uh, or somebody else. Uh, we're at, at a time here with about 13 months to go where uh, the American public is channeling the frustration and the anger that Henry referred to earlier, driven principally by stagnant wages and uh, an economy that many people just aren't getting ahead in. And so there, you see it with Bernie Sanders and his 20, 25, you know, thousand people crowds, and you see it with Donald Trump on the other side. But when the field begins to winnow, uh, I think they understand we're going to be actually electing a president, too. So uh, Hillary Clinton, barring something completely unforeseen, will be the Democratic Party nominee. On the Republican side, you know, I thought, I thought that Donald would have a shelf life of about a week, but, you know, <laughs> he survived more statements than any politician I've ever seen. So I think he may actually have the uh, effect of, and I saw him for about an hour last week in New Hampshire, and you can kind of see what his appeal might be to this Tea Party element, but I think he's kind of capped at 30%. And 30% does you pretty well in a 14-way race. 30%'s not gonna get you home in a two or three-person race. And uh, the way he answered questions and interacted with these sort of non-committed voters, I just don't know how he grows that support uh, dramatically from where he is. He didn't do terribly, but I just don't see how he, um, 
is going to grow his support from where it is. So I think he may actually serve uh, the purpose of keeping other Tea Partiers from rising up. And uh, Cruz's strategy is to try and be everybody's number two. But if the Donald goes all the way to the end, uh, that'll keep that from happening. So I think it's probably going to be a choice between Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, and John Kasich. Any th of the three could win. Uh, you know, Rubio might be the one that has the potential to have one foot on some of the Tea Party side and one foot on the establishment side. Um, whether he can get it done or not, I don't know. But uh, one of those three, I think, will be the nominee. And the final thing I'd say, I think the popular vote will be very close. The Republicans have the time for a change argument going for them after eight years of people are kind of looking for alternatives. But the Democrats have demographics uh, going for us and most of all the Electoral College because as we all remember from the 2000 election, it's not the popular vote that elects the president, it's the Electoral College. And when you look at the number, I may get the facts slightly wrong, but if you look at the, the states that the Democrats have carried six elections in a row, six straight times, it totals about 242 electoral votes. You only need 270 to win. So if you just win the states you've won six times in a row plus Florida, you win. The same states you've won six times in a row plus Ohio and almost any other state, you win. So mathematically, the, the, the comparable figure for the Republicans, I think, is about 110 or 120 electoral votes. So uh, uh, the, uh, Secretary Clinton will just start off with a huge built-in advantage uh, in the Electoral College. The Republican can overcome that, but you've really got to almost run the table uh, to, get, to get there. All right, I know we have some questions. Let's hear from some members of the audience. Just step up to the microphones, if you will, and ask away. Fire away. Hi, uh, my name is Terrell Laguerre, and I'm a graduate student at the University of Dallas, uh, which is up in Irving. And my question is about the, um, well, I guess all the candidates, or excuse me, not candidates, all the representatives, <laughs> various um, uh, places have mentioned that it's up to the electorate to be more involved and to be more informed. And Julia, I imagine you have some thoughts on this too as a member of the media. But um, how is that even possible when there are there is such a focus on the horse race. I guess I'm just wondering how do you encourage people to be more informed when the media itself is so focused on the horse race? How do you get around that? And I can imagine um, I know the senator mentioned that you spend so much time fundraising. I'm wondering if that impacts the amount of time you can actually spend in smaller meetings in your district or in your in your home state, um, talking to people about the issues and getting them more informed on the ground. So I guess just wondering your ideas for improving the electorate's education about things and um, so that we can meet the expectations that you all have for our participation. Thank you. Well, let, let me emphasize your point a little further on giving you an example of what, what that problem is. Evan was talking about the support that Trump gets, Tea Party support. He gets that in spite of the fact that um, he's got a whole variety of issues that the Tea Party hates, positions that the Tea Party hates. He's a single-payer uh, health care supporter. He, his use of eminent domain is, is one of the issues that's anathema to the Tea Party. He's got a whole host of them. And the reason I think that's appropriate to the question you ask is I think people react to the style that is counterproductive to their own positions quite often. So the only way, the only way this country moves forward is if we on an individual basis 
begin to understand that the people we elect are going to make the policies. We just have to keep talking to each other and stressing the fact. It's self-communication. Use the social media to make the point. Find out what these people really are all about. We ought to be voting for people that have policies that we want. If we don't do that, shame on us. And, and there's no magic education program other than talk, 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 talk. It's one of the lines I use in New Hampshire when I go out to a political rally. I close it by saying the most influential person in, in a political discussion is you. And when you talk to your family, your friends, your kids, it makes a difference. And so the only answer I can give you is talk, 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 talk. Yeah. Both as a participant in the political process as well as an observer in recent years, I've come to the personal conclusion that there really is such a thing as the wisdom of the voters. The, the, the mass generally gets it right. And frankly, the deeper we go into media coverage of campaigns, they actually can kind of get the nuance of the distinction between personalities, and they actually know who stands for what at a, at a kind of a subtle level. So the, the, I have great faith, and I'm not pandering to, to this audience. I'm just saying my, my view is the public generally gets it right. And for example, when President Reagan was president, yeah, there were some issues that people didn't like you know, one-off if they'd picked that one issue, but they liked him and they wanted him to continue, you know? And, and, and so the, the, the more we can get to the place where the voters have information outside of the clutter of the PAC ads and the super PAC, uh, uh, you know, groups that, that put together ads and, and all of the rest of it and, and create the public forums where people can see and judge the better we are. And that may be the only antidote we've got right now in, the, in, the, in this uh, face of the, of the money assault is to create more settings, more forums where people can, 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 can make those judgments. I trust the judgment of people when they, uh, when they see up close. I, I was, as I say, I was in New Hampshire just yesterday and, and, and candidates in New Hampshire have to go to small gatherings. They're not hundreds of people, they're, they're in somebody's living room. A presidential candidate in somebody's living room. And at the end of the day, people actually know what they want because they've had access. They've had, you know, closeness. We can get some of that in, in, through, through televised uh, debates and so forth and have to do a lot more of it to offset the effect of the money. That's my sense. Let, let's take another question. Go ahead, sir. Um, thank you for such a great panel. Um, there was the discussion of the, um, it, the overwhelming need for fundraising for these folks, these office holders. Um, is there a concern or should there be a concern about self-selection of people who voluntarily subject themselves to that kind of a life as opposed to focusing on policy development, contacts with constituents, and that kind of way to spend your time? Well, you know, I didn't talk on the campaign uh, money issue, uh, but I'll, here's what I think the problem is. Um, I think it's McCain-Feingold, uh, because we took the parties out of uh, the process, and that's how these super PACs that don't have the reporting requirements that a party does or a candidate does uh, have gotten so much control. And uh, I think 
um, I think people go into politics for the policy and capability to make a difference, to do the things that uh, you think would do would make our country or our state or our city do better. Um, they find out the requirement for money when their campaign team says, oh, by the way, we have to buy ads. And so that's when uh, you do have to step up to the plate and help to raise money. I think campaign uh, limitations, for instance, the difference in a state campaign in Texas and a federal campaign is you, there are severe limits on what any individual can give um, to a federal candidate. It's, um, you know, $1,500, or if, it, if it's a PAC, it can be 5000 or something like that. But um, a state candidate can take a million dollars, and some do. And so that's when the question arises, well, what does someone, um, what are the responsibilities to someone who's given you a million dollars? You know, I was always, um, well, uh, we didn't have the, we had the limits in my races, uh, mostly. So um, I think it's very, um, I, I think if we had more transparency, at least people would know what groups are supporting you and what people are supporting you and why. And a lot of it is what you believe in and what you're talking about. Um, but when you are elected, you ought to be able to govern rather than go uh, try to raise money uh, such an extensive period of time. I'm told we only have about five minutes left, so can, can, can we could do another question? You can answer it. Sorry, Senator. It's okay. <laughs> Wanted to go to the point that you made, uh, the governor made about uh, political capital going back to the grand bargain deal that Speaker Boehner carved out with President Obama that ultimately never got a vote, uh, presumably because it would have passed with majority Democratic vote on the House floor, so it was never given to a vote. So is it fair to hold both parties accountable for this? Is this one party more than the other? Are you, do we hold both counties, parties accountable for the gridlock that's responsible, or is there one party that's more? Look, when George Herbert Walker Bush was president, you hold George Herbert Walker Bush responsible. When Bill Clinton is president, you hold Bill Clinton responsible. When George W. Bush is president, you hold George W. Bush responsible. And when Obama's president, when, when Barack Obama's president, you hold Barack Obama responsible. My, my feeling is what happens at the state capitol, what happens in Washington, is led, led by the chief executive of the moment, whatever party they're in. And I, don't, I really am a firm believer that that's the way the system was designed to function anyway. Senator Biden, you agree? It does take strong executive leadership, no question about that. I, I think there's a lot of blame to go around. I don't think this is a partisan phenomenon. It's gotten more gridlocked uh, under successive presidents and under Congresses of different parties' control. That said, there is really something going unusual going on in the House of Representatives right now where the Speaker resigns because he's got a block in his own party who can't abide him and his desire to try and get a few things done. His number two has the votes within vast majority of Republicans supporting him, but he then drops out of the race because that group of 40 won't support him. And now, I mean, even Paul Ryan, they're, they're, Paul Ryan is a good guy. He's a conservative guy. Uh, there are articles being written that maybe he's not conservative. So, and you've got people on the far left who kind of, you know, mirror image of all that. But in the House right now, there's some 
real dysfunction going on that's probably not uh, at the doorstep of the, the president. Uh, getting back to the money, uh, should we be concerned about people who sort of self-select into this process? Yeah, maybe some, because uh, I used to look with, you know, uh, interest on people who just love fundraising. They just couldn't wait to get out there and call people and ask for money. I said, wow, that, that's, uh, that's an interesting way these people are wired. But most aren't like that. Most are in it for the policy and trying to do the right thing, and they just tolerate, you know, the, the fundraising. So, but in that environment, I mean, if you're, um, you know, not, uh, you know, you're not, uh, if you have low self-esteem and that sort of thing, you're probably not going to flourish in an environment that causes you to have to be out there asking people for help all the time. Uh, but I've not seen any data to answer your question directly that there's a correlation between a, a willingness to tolerate the fundraising uh, escalation and other adverse things, you know, like corruption or you know, things like that. Well, one quick point. Remember what the money is used for. It's to communicate with us, right? It's to talk to us through advertising, through television, through social media, whatever it is. But the money is 90% is of it goes to getting a message to us, some on an individual basis, some on a mass basis. And so the, the, I go back to what I said before. It's still all of us that can make the difference. All right, last question. Go ahead. Hi, I'm a sophomore here at the University of Texas, and I saw at the last Texas statewide election that the one location where there was voting on campus, the lines were intimidating and terrifyingly long. Um, I did wait in them and I did vote, but I heard last night Dan Patrick, our lieutenant governor, say that he shouldn't be responsible to do anything to increase the resources available to allow people to vote. How should we keep politicians responsible to allow citizens to vote and not be intimidated by long lines or like shortage of resources? Well, for one thing, I think having the basically two weeks of voting really helps that a lot. And in the states like Texas, where we have the um, early voting capability, the turnout uh, is enhanced, I think, because it makes it more convenient. Um, having, if there's only one place to vote on campus, uh, you know, I think the local officials can do what's necessary to have more locations, but I also would urge uh, taking advantage of early voting. And uh, I've come to do that now all the time uh, because I can just go in on a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, and I think it's really important. Some states don't even have it. And that is what I think really curbs the voting turnout. Every approach to expanding people's capacity to vote should be explored, whether it's more polling places or whether it's the, the days to vote or, or any other thing. And unfortunately, in recent years, we've seen some strategies designed to do the opposite with voter identification, ID, picture IDs, and all kinds of things that make it harder. So the principle ought to be open it up as much as possible, encourage people to vote. That, that's the overriding principle, I think. All right, I'm afraid we have to wrap it up there. This has been a terrific conversation. Thank you to Governor Sununu, Secretary Cisneros, Senator Hutchison, and Senator Bai. I'm Julie Mason. Thanks to Texas Tribune.